genuine question now. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it yet. What we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no, you can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all-new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers. But for me, even once in the office, I struggled with many elements of in-person work that didn't allow me to actually create my best work. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, which is the audio destination for business professionals. Well done. I got it right this week. You did. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist. My name is Al and I'm a business owner. And we are here to help you simplify the science of people and create amazing workplace cultures. Talking of workplace cultures, I think one of the biggest like argument that seems to be raging on at the moment in terms of workplace culture is... Do we want everyone to go back to the office? Does everyone want to work remotely? Yeah, it's almost like, wait a minute, guys, before we get onto the culture, where's the workplace starting? (laughs) (laughs) True, that's 50% of workplace culture, isn't it? The workplace. So that's a really good point. So what we decided to do was we're going to have a two-part mini-series. Today, in this episode, we're going to be talking and fighting for the arguments for remote working. Whoop, whoop. And which we are very bullish on because we've been remote working for a long time. We'll talk about that in a second. And then next week, we're going to be arguing from the opposite end, end, uh, end of it and saying, is the office actually dead or should we all be going back to the office? Yeah, is the office making a comeback? I'll be honest, I didn't think it was until we went to Clerkenwell Design Week last week. Spoke to some really interesting experts and even now I'm like, huh, maybe. But then maybe not because, you know, remote work is just better, isn't it? Well, we think it is. And the reason we think it is, is because we've been doing remote work now for about 10 years. We started off, we left the UK about 10 years ago. And so we've been literally working remotely, not from home, but working from anywhere from, I don't know, Thailand, Myanmar, um, all over Europe, all over Europe, Lithuania, Australia, New Zealand. So we literally have been working remotely. So we obviously are used to it. We're happy with it. It makes us happy. But there are people who've been only been doing it for two or three years. And as we'll find out next week, we're finding people who are vehemently against it. Talking to people being vehemently against it, Amazon, I think it was this week, I saw in the news um, that they are recalling, mandatory recalling workers back to the office. And uh, I think there was some kind of like riot or demonstration outside the headquarters, basically saying, we don't want to do it. So we can see their point. 
we can see that point. We've been championing remote work as a lifestyle for a very, 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 very long time. So I think the thing is, one thing that I would say to frame this episode, if you are team office, and don't worry, we will be representing team office next week. But if you are team office and really hate remote work during the pandemic, my only thing would be, you weren't really working remotely. You're working remotely during a global pandemic. You know, we found it really shit working remotely during during the pandemic. It was rubbish and we'd already been doing it for ages. Um, so yeah, open minds, please. But at the same time, this episode is all about how remote working is the future. It is here to stay. It is the winner of the competition. Love it. So before Leanne introduced the guests, then let's just take a second. Little word, as they say in America, a word from our sponsors. Our first guest representing Team Remote is Ross Simmons. Ross is CEO at Foundation, a content marketing agency that combines data and creativity to develop and serve ambitious B2B brands. He also operates 100% remotely. He's also the host of Create Like the Greats, our sibling show on the HubSpot Podcast Network. Let's meet Ross. Yeah. So my name is Ross Simmons. I'm the host of Create Like the Greats, which is a podcast where we go into the inner workings of how some of the greatest creators of all time have done or do what they do. Um, in addition to that, on a regular basis, I'm the CEO and founder of Foundation Marketing, which is a content marketing firm that works with some of the biggest uh, names in SaaS. So we work with a wide range of different companies in the world of SaaS on their content marketing strategies. I'm a father of three. I'm a big fan of the Philadelphia Eagles. I love a great cause. And I'm super excited to be on Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture. I'm so excited to be here. So thank you for having me on. Our second guest is Bethany Sampson. Bethany's People Director, Investors in People. That's a community interest company which is calling for organizational change to put people first. Now, if you're from the UK, there's a very good chance you'll have heard of of, of Investors in People. You probably even know what the logo looks like. But for the benefit of the US, this is a big company is a big deal in the UK, all campaigning to put people first. We had the pleasure of meeting Beth at the Water Cooler Conference, where she was one of the speakers and the panel facilitators, facilitators easy for me to say, and also our last guest. Um, if you're listening, Beth, do you remember that very strange conversation we had with a fella who just turned up and we won't go into it, but it was all very odd. Beth will know. Let's go meet Beth and hear more about Investors in People. Investors in People is probably most recognised by our Laurel. Um, you might have seen it on letters from DVLA, from the bank. And what we do is we accredit businesses for their people and wellbeing and apprentices practice, which means if they're doing great work, we can recognise that for them with different levels up to platinum. But mainly what we're focused on doing, our, our purpose and reason for existing is to make work better, to make work uh, more enjoyable, better for wellbeing, and also to give better opportunities to young people entering the workplace. And by the way, investors in people is also fully remote. Interesting. So the pro-remote team is strong. It's about to go down. Is that what the cool kids say? Yeah, do the little, do the sound. What sound? So if you're listening last week, you will know that there wasn't enough time to do the news roundup. Good news. It's back this week. Give the jingle. Okay, Leah, what you got? I've got a word of the week. Greenwashing. Hmm. I think I've heard this before. Oh, tell me. Um, I think I heard it in the context when we were at Clerkenwell. I heard a few people talk about it. And if I've got it right, something to do with you say that you're eco-friendly, but actually you're just doing them bare minimum or something. 
pretty much. Yeah, I too heard about it at Clark and Well. It was a big topic of the of the design week, um, all about environment and sustainability. So greenwashing is when an organization spends more time and money on marketing itself as environmentally friendly rather than actually on minimising its environmental impact. This sits in the same family as wellness washing that we talked about a few weeks ago. So yeah, organisations tend to make very broad sustainability claims without any evidence. They overstate their positive impacts on the environment. They advertise products as eco-friendly, but often the raw material sourced won't be. Basically, they're making a big song and dance about how they're saving the planet and they probably don't even recycle their water bottles. (laughs) which they shouldn't have anyway because single-use plastic is no good here. No, we won't have that. So basically, fur coat, no knickers. Is that (laughs) what we're saying? Exactly, yeah. (laughs) What else you got, Leah? Well, when I started reading up on, um, what was it? What's it called? Greenwashing. But wellness (laughs) washing in my head. Greenwashing. When I started reading up on that, uh, Nike, Nike, Nike. Nikkei, I think think is the right way. Nikkei, the sports brand. Yes, they make shoes. Nikkei came up very (laughs) highly in my feed. Um, So apparently, earlier this month, I hadn't heard about this until I started to dive into into greenwashing, Uh, but classaction.org reported a proposed class action against Nikkei that alleges (laughs) the products in the brand's sustainable clothing collection are not as eco-friendly as advertised. Um, so yeah, apparently there's a 47 page greenwashing lawsuit of charges being brought, uh, that Nike, um, has allegedly attempted to capitalize on consumers' preferences for green products and falsely claiming how they're actually putting these, these products together and the, uh, materials they're using. Not cool, Nike, not cool. Um, so apparently that lawsuit was filed on the 10th of May. Um, and we'll we'll see how that that goes for them. Not the first sports brand to be poured into a people and culture scandal recently, and not the type of press you want. Because uh, research is showing us, as we've talked about before, sixty percent of Gen Z would say they'd avoid applying for jobs with employees that have even a perceived negative impact on the environment. So not a great time, nor a green time for Nike's employer oh, brand. Nice, nicely wrapped up. And what about the last piece there you got, Leanne? By the way, are you going to read the 47-page report on this podcast or are we going to let people just go and find it? I'll leave a link. I'll leave a link, yeah. Yeah. The third bit of research that caught my eye this week was about asynchronous creativity. So I know. It is widely thought that working synchronously, so working together, is better for creativity and ideation. And it's one of the main reasons business leaders cite all the time when calling people back into the office we need it for our culture for our creativity for our collaboration for ideation etc etc but does working together actually make us more creative well according to new research it might not be true hmm. so aruna raganathan an associate That's professor a name. can we have that again <laughs> that is amazing <laughs> aruna raganathan love it yeah, it's a really good name. Writing that down. So Aruna Ranganathan is Associate Professor of Management and Organisations at the Haas Haas School of Business. H-A-A-S. How do we pronounce that? You did German. Haas. Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. And they found while there are benefits for ideation, synchronous work is also stifling a lot of people's creativity. 
So it studied men and women folk musicians and it showed that recording musical parts asynchronously, so apart, not together, led to greater creative freedom and therefore greater creativity, particularly for women musicians, while there was no variance amongst amongst men, which which is part of the the point of the research really so the findings were consistent with the point that in safe communication climates yes working together can have a positive impact on creativity but research has not taken into account the experience of lower status members of the group including women and marginalized people um so i think that the headline is if i want to be a skeptical clickbaity about it i'd like you to be Creativity works better in the office if you are a straight, middle-class white male. (laughs) Well, there you go. There's the end of the news roundup. We are going to go into our 10 reasons why remote work is the future and everything else can get in the bin. Um, Obviously, just remember that we're arguing for remote work this week and we're arguing for office work next week. So we will be playing that part. So we've got 10 reasons. Well, actually, we, I say we, because Leanne's written this, the 10 reasons down. But we've got 10 reasons here. We'll go, we'll recap all 10 of them at the end, but let's start off with reason number one. Remote work is preferred. Yes. So remote work has been around for some time, since the 1980s, in fact. But of course, the pandemic completely accelerated that trend and reshaped our professional world. The data shows that we freaking love working remotely. (laughs) So Buffer's 2022 State of the Remote Work Report revealed that 61% of people consider it a positive experience to work remotely. And it's encouraging to know that no one said remote work was negative or has been a negative experience for them. So it's all good, Al. There is no bad. And on top of that, 56% said their preference is to be fully remote. 30% said remote first and only 3% office-based. One point to remote work, please. Let's hear from our guest Ross on his experience with people preferring remote work. I'll take you back into time to my first experience with the internet. And it would have been while I was in university. I kind of was walking through the library. I looked at everyone's computers and I saw that they were all on Facebook all at the same time. And I said, this makes no sense why in school and in class, I'm learning about billboards when all of the attention that people actually have is being distributed to social media. So at that time, I immediately went in aggressive at startups and technology and social media and content. And I started rossimmons.com. And that was my first website that I ran and I created. Um, But in parallel to this, after creating content, after running my own, again, even at that time, a small little remote freelance company with myself and a partner, I got to a point where I realized um, that remote was, in my opinion, the key to actually having um, the ability to kind of maintain my own level of sanity. I got shortly after running my own company um, brought into a larger agency. And I worked in this agency in-house and I actually had to show up every single day and the commute was quite long for me where I had to drive for about 60 minutes each day to get to this office. And for me, as somebody who cares deeply deeply about their time, I did the math on how many hours I was spending every year to actually just commute my physical body from home to the office. And when I did that math, I started to realize this is a lot of wasted time. And I could have bought a place that was a little bit closer. I could have done those things. But for me, even once in the office, I struggled with many elements of in-person work that didn't allow me to actually create my best work, to allow me to reach the pinnacle of excellence in my work. So shortly thereafter, 
I left that company and I started Foundation, which has been fully remote since 2014. And we have no intentions of ever changing that. Um, we've been fully remote since day one. And the key to that is really just being intentional with recognizing that remote work is different. And with remote work, communication excellence is a necessity rather than a nice to have. When you are in the office, it's easy to go and have lunch with your colleagues and peers, or even just say something across the office that the entire company hears within the matter of seconds. But with a remote first company, you have to set a bar and a level of expectation around what great communication looks like. And then as the leader of the company, you need to match it and meet it every single day. Beth has also observed that remote work was a preferred option of teams invested in people. And since the pandemic has continued with a fully remote model. Yeah, so it's it's changed um, significantly for us as an organisation. Um, we did have a model where we had delivery partners across the UK. We've brought all of those in-house. So for the first time, we are one entity across the UK for investors in people. Um, we have also started working from home exclusively. Um, that was triggered by the pandemic, although we always had flexible working before. And we made a judgment that people were happier, more productive, um, I really loved having that flexibility of being at home. So that's another change. And then for me personally, um, over the last couple of years, I've been promoted to people director, which has been fantastic to take a more strategic role, have the opportunity to speak on things like this. So remote work is preferred by employees. So number two is remote work makes an employer attractive or unattractive. Now, We've talked about the fight for talent before. We've, there's, we've done an entire podcast on it, a couple of podcasts around this. And if you speak to anyone who's recruiting at the moment, they will probably tell you that the fight for talent is definitely a problem right now. So one of the biggest things that helps with the fight for talent is employer brand. Now, where you, co- where you can't offer a whole lot more in terms of money, you can offer it in terms of other benefits. The state of remote work 2022 is by a company, I think it's called Owl Labs, not Al, Owl, found that interest in in-office work dropped by 24%. So despite returning to in-office work, sick, almost 60% of respondents preferred working from home full-time. Interestingly, if an employer said you can no longer work remotely anymore, then about two-thirds of the respondents would begin looking for a job that better supports these priorities. And another 33% would just quit outright. <laughs> so basically, we're talking about 100% of people who would be affected if you just withdrew any kind of work flexibility. So whilst we've seen the organisations like Amazon, Twitter, UK Civil Service, Starbucks and all that kind of thing, they have been telling people they have to come back to the office. It's no wonder that the employer brands have been damaged in those companies. Fair enough, Amazon didn't have a brilliant employer brand to start off with, um, but in some cases has led to litigation. So why are businesses doing this? Is it because they're it's out of fear? Is it the loss of control? Is this just a classic 80s shoulder pad power move, Gordon Gecko style? We asked Ross. I think the biggest challenge that a lot of these larger organizations face is that they have legacy cultural dynamics that are very difficult to let go. So for foundation, it's easy for us to be pro remote work, to preach about the benefits of remote work because we have the infrastructure from day one that was intended to create a culture that was remote first. If you're an organization that has been around for decades and you have invested millions, sometimes even billions of dollars in infrastructure and buildings and um, spaces, you have catering teams for your company, you have a yoga instructor on contract for your company. Sometimes these levels of complexity 
force the hand of leadership to say, yeah, we need people back in the office. We need to make a more hybrid environment because we have sunk so much cost into our actual infrastructure that it would be very difficult for us to move and shift. And sometimes it's really a case of they don't know what they don't know. And I think in many cases, people resort to where their comfort is and remote work is still relatively new. And it's comfortable to say everyone must show up at the office. Everyone must work in their cubicle because that's the way that work has been done for decades. That's the way that work has been done for many, many years. And it's easier to navigate that type of environment. When you look at the current landscape from an economic standpoint as well, there's an additional level of pressure being applied to leaders and managers and directors who are forced to think critically around How can we maximize the ROI of the people that we have? And whether it's right or not, a lot of people believe that they can't get ROI out of their team unless they can see them. And if they can't see them, if they can't watch them, if they can't have that one-to-one interaction, then they feel uncomfortable. They feel a little bit um, like they don't have their cloak on and that people can see everything, right? And that is, again, a challenge, a bias that is very difficult to shake and overcome. And I believe, as much as I'm a fan of remote work, that a lot of large organizations, large companies will be office first, office centric, maybe hybrid until I take my last breath on this planet. Like I think it's going to be the norm still and continue to be the norm for a very long time. Now, Ross went on to explain that this provides this massive opportunity for small businesses who are pursuing talent. Because if you imagine like huge companies, IBM, the likes, Amazon, they're like juggernauts or like big, like huge, big container ships. It takes a long time to turn things around, to turn around. Whereas companies of 25, 50 or even 150 employees can just decide, all right, as of Monday, we're going to be trying working remotely. If, you, if you're interested in like, for example, the four-day work week, then a lot of the people who did the four-day work week, which is an episode we did about four or five weeks ago, they were talking about, they trialed it. And they were perfectly happy to turn it around and everyone else just knew that they could cancel at any point in time if it didn't work. So the point is that if you're a small company, you can implement this pretty quickly. Now, the crux of finding and keeping great customers, we all know this, Cost Business 101 is finding out what the customers want and giving it to them. So it stands to reason that the crux of getting great talent is finding out what they want and giving them that And what they want seems to be the flexibility to work wherever and whenever they like. There's a huge upside. There's a huge upside. And the huge upside is like that model and the challenges and the legacy infrastructure is putting the organization's wants and biases first versus the employee's wants and biases first. Employees, oftentimes some that are high quality employees will want flexibility and autonomy. And if those individuals loved working through the pandemic because they were able to perform at a high level, but they were also able to ensure that they attended every recital that their child had, those are people who those traditional legacy companies might not ever attract again. They might not be able to recruit them. No matter how many hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars they offer, if these individuals value their time and value the ideas and the principles that come with remote work, 
that's where the smaller companies actually have a chance to find some differentiation. At Foundation, this has been a part of our strategy. When we came to the market, we weren't working with the top SaaS companies in the world, but we knew we wanted to attract some bright minds. So we offered fully remote, autonomy, et cetera, and we've been able to attract some great talent because of that. And I think that is the upside. You increase your actual um, pool of talent to be exponentially better when you can offer an experience that is remote versus one that is whole closed door and only working in the office. It really is a huge opportunity. And I think what I found somewhat surprising from some of the organizations that I'm looking at on LinkedIn, particularly within, you know, like people are usually connected and they've got little, their little, little business clicks going on. I've been really surprised that they've been like, Oh, what you're going back to the office three days. Oh, yeah. 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 We're going to do that too. Yeah. Yeah. Totes. Yeah. Yeah. Almost even like, Oh, well, if they're doing them, we'll, we'll just do that because of that. That's solving the problem. Right. Whereas usually small businesses are like the hunger game, survival of the fittest, like you're doing that. <laughs> Loser, I'm going to go do this. <laughs> so I find it surprising almost that the consensus we've come to around going back to the office around a set number of days in the office, um, mandated days in the I just, I find it really surprising that small businesses aren't being a little bit more forward thinking, especially those businesses who are who are crying themselves to sleep at night because they've got so many roles open in their business and they're finding it really hard to attract new talent and they're seeing talent shortages in the market. Well, not only is that going to attract, make you more attractive in your local market, but if you're a remote company, you can hire people from anywhere in the country, anywhere on the continent, anywhere in the world. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I can kind of see from a small business point of view, when I say small, I mean up to sort of 500 employees. We're not talking like micro business. Then there is a risk because we've had a, we've had a tough run of it the last three or four years. Almost any small business you talk to, they go, yeah, we had two years off because of the pandemic. You know, things that shit went down. So I can see that they're being a bit more conservative than they might have been five years ago. So I can see that, but the reasons to allow flexibility for work just seem to be so numerous that I don't know why someone's saying, no, we're not going to do this. Talking of which, let's just go on to number three, which is, now this is a good one, remote work supports a healthier work-life balance. It's interesting, and I'm going to come back to a report in a second that Leanne's found, but it's interesting. Work-life balance, If I think we're always going to have a load of, a minority of people who go, there is no work-life balance, I just I just work. That's what makes me happy. A minority of people who are going to be, who are going to be like, oh, no, 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 I, I, I'd never want to work. I want to do two or three hours a, week, a day. And if I don't earn much money, money, then fair enough. Then we got the people in the middle and they're going to swing. Like in the elections, you're going to see the swingometer. They're going to swing and they're going to be like, yeah, okay, I work life balance. I want to work more. I want to work less, et cetera, et cetera. But it boils down to the future of remote work report, which is in 2022, which is published by Zapier. Um, interesting. I found out recently Zapier rhymes with happier. So it's not Zapier like I was calling him. So interesting I say that happier because people chose to work remotely because it makes them happy. So they believe that remote work allows them to achieve a work-life balance which is crucial to their overall well-being. Now that means that sort of almost nine out of ten employees believe the ability to work remotely would contribute to the happiness and a better work-life balance respectively. And 85% of employees feel a remote or hybrid job makes them happier. But does it? Leah, I want, I'm, uh, do you, does work, does working remotely make you happy? Yes. <laughs> 
Right, case closed. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. But then, like we said, we're old hands at this. We've been doing it for a long time, but working remotely has definitely given us more flexibility, more experiences that that we've, or I guess, more experience had within a shorter period of time. It's um, it it works really well for me. I like it. I like it. Yeah, and I do. And I think um, a lot of the stuff that we do tends to be sort of a, more creative than just sort of, a, you know, administrative. Um, and I find that if I'm, if I'm being, being think, if you wake up and you're a bit of a bad mood, then you might go and, you know, reconcile your accounts or like you did this morning and um, went and changed our thumbnail on, on our logo. By the way, what do you think of our new thumbnail listener? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but there are other days where I wake up and I'm like seven o'clock in the morning, bing, and I'm like, I want to go and create something today. Now, if every day we had to go to the office and every day then with that commute, I feel for me the commute kind of like slightly mutes my my excitedness for the day. Yes, there is something really indulgent about working remotely, particularly if you're working somewhere abroad. Like we said, we've worked in Thailand, we've worked in Cambodia, we've worked, we've worked in many, many places. There is something that is so wonderful about even if you, and I've worked a really quite high stressful job during the majority of that, those years where we were really nomadic. And the joy of being able to close your laptop, step outside onto a beach and have someone hand you a pina colada. <laughs> That's an extreme example. But even then just knowing, you know, okay, well, I've closed my laptop. I'm in in Venice for the next two weeks. So cool. Once I finish work, I'm I'm on holiday. They really just provide you that that. I guess that ability to to switch off, but I, yeah, it, I guess the, the tricky thing is is that working remotely does blur the lines. It does blur the lines between work and home. And one of the downsides of remote work can be that ability to disconnect. So if you're not working remotely from Venice or Kosamui, then it can be a bit more tricky. But we have seen this as an issue, a reported issue um, by employees, decrease over the last two years. So we're getting better at it. As we've said, we've done this for for 10 years and it does take some practice. And I think it seemed to fit together for us when we came to the conclusion that remote work is less about work-life balance and perhaps a little bit more about work-life integration. Nice. But of course, we are speaking from a huge place of privilege, being self-employed and having very progressive employers before this, we were able to work remotely from anywhere. And while there are many organizations that are embracing remote work, much fewer are embracing work from anywhere. Except for Ross. Ross does. And while he admits it's a challenge, he also believes that work-life integration is a useful perspective to take. It's difficult. But just because something is difficult doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. And I think for us, we believe that this whole concept of work-life balance is a bit of a myth and that what we should actually strive for is work-life integration, where your work and your life can be integrated in a way that gives you optimal happiness and joy and fulfillment every single day. So when we think about that and we believe that that's the way that things should be, we encourage our teammates and our colleagues to work wherever, as mentioned on the site, they want to lay their Mac down. That could be in Cambodia. That could be in Argentina. That could be in Mexico. That could be in Bali. It could be anywhere in the world. The only thing that we as an organization need to do to ensure that that is possible is one, in 
ensure and create an environment where asynchronous communication is key, where transparent communication happens, and where we have the security procedures and policies in place to ensure that our team is always operating in a way that doesn't give any potential risk to our partners and our clients. So we have policies and procedures around how to manage a remote working environment and experience. We use solutions and tools to ensure that we're able to manage the data and to constantly be reviewing the devices that our team has to ensure that they don't have viruses and things of that nature as well, that no harm can be done. So these are the types of things that you have to think about. And yes, it is hard, but in our perspective and our belief is that if you can create an environment where people can thrive no matter where they are, then you can attract some of the best talent in the world. I like the way he thinks. I do. I did an interview, Ross. I kind of wish I had. He seems pretty cool. He's ace. Yeah. Yeah. Just like one of those guys who's just like effortlessly cool. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. So reason number four why remote work is amazing is it allows work to work for the individual. Like Ross just said, if you create an environment where people can thrive no matter where they are, then you can attract some of the best talent in the world. The fact is that as we seem to, most of us, who mainly those people who answer surveys, seem to say that we like the flexibility of where we work. We like choice. So when we're working from home, for example, uh, about 75% of us will work from a home office, about 40% from the bedroom, 24% from outdoors, 21% in the wardrobe. Yeah, I didn't understand that either. I Now... <laughs> If you record, if you do a Zoom call or something in the wardrobe, all the clothes dampen your your sound and you sound amazing. And I think that's a problem. Offices aren't typically built now or set up for how people want to work in their own individual ways. And it does seem that this individual preference is really a big thing. So again, if you look at the statistics, we're kind of looking that 70 to 75% of people want to work remote first or I may be in the office some of the time. Then we've got 20% of people who want to work remotely all the time. And the remainder, which is only about 10, 15% max, want to work from the office. So even within an organisation, we're going to likely have people with very different preferences that we need to think about in terms of individuals. And I wonder if that's why the three days out of five seems to be the magic number when it comes to kind of the office remote split. Mm. Because they'll look at these statistics and go, oh, that'll keep everywhere happy. <laughs> but reflecting those statistics, it might be a fair compromise or it could actually just be the worst of both worlds. I asked Ross about that. I'm a big believer in that there's like, there's a lot of shades of grey. And every human is kind of like an onion. And this is a Shrek reference, but every onion, every human has different layers and every layer is going to be different from one person to the next. And that reality will result in fully in-office culture works extremely well for a certain type of person. Fully remote culture works extremely well for a certain type of person. And hybrid also works extremely well for a certain type of person. I think there is a environment and a case to be made for all of the different types of work environments. But I think you have to understand first and foremost yourself and you have to understand what you want in life. When it comes to a hybrid environment, some people don't like the fact that an organization will say you have to come in and they say have to come in two days a week. That alone, that requirement is giving them a limited amount of autonomy for two days a week. And that is enough for them to say, this isn't for me. 
on the flip side, some people would say, yeah, I do need that break at least two days a week where I can connect with my, my peers, my colleagues in person. We can grab pizza at lunch. We can do all of those in-person things, have cupcakes afterwards, blah, blah, blah. Like those are things that some people really do want in their life. And I think the moment that a, a leader who runs a remote company, even like myself, has a blanket statement that remote is the only way to go is when you are taking away from your own credibility to recognize that everyone is different and everybody's life, everybody's lived experiences are going to be different. Some people don't live in a home that is set up to work remotely. And that means those people would love to work in an office or would love to work in a hybrid environment. That's okay. It's okay for everyone to be different. So I would never say that hybrid doesn't work for anyone. It does. But it all starts with understanding the individual, their circumstances, their preferences, their ambitions, their own perspective on work and what they want in their life and in their career. So yeah, maybe it is the worst of all worlds, actually. So rather than focusing on the whole, remote work first requires focusing on the individual. It is not rocket science. You ask people what they want and you try to give it to them. Right, Beth? Yeah. Um, so I will let you in on a secret. <laughs> if you do what people want, they will be happier. So people wanted to stay working from home. Uh, we got feedback on that. We collected data on it and we've delivered what they wanted. And that's had massive results for us in terms of engagement and motivation. Um, but it's really important for me as well to be pragmatic and be commercial. So I looked at metrics like productivity and we're better than we were. I looked at metrics from an HR perspective in terms of absence. We've got much lower absence. Even metrics like um, any kind of formal HR processes dramatically reduced. And um, it's not that we've all been working from home and we don't see each other. We have quarterly team days where we all get together and the main focus is learning and connecting. And that's been fantastic for building the culture, helping people feel connected back to the purpose and to each other. And the glow from that lasts pretty much for the whole quarter until we get together again. That lady talks some sense. Do you know what I think it comes down to? What? If you're in working in line with our own individual preferences is something we've been able to indulge in during the pandemic. So working remotely allows us to continue working in a way that suits us individuals. Going back to the office then puts us in this environment where we have to operate and work as a group in ways that aren't at my preference. So I think it's 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 not, and I don't say this because it might give a point to the office, but if the office start to actually think about how do we facilitate individuals in the way that they want to work, then maybe people wouldn't be losing their shit about being asked to go back to the office. There's, there's a big difference between mandating someone to go back to the office and encouraging them to go back to the office. And if you can make the office cooler than your than wet, than home, well, people are going to flock there. That's why the cool bars always do well and then they go out of fashion because another cool bar comes along. So... Lower absence, higher engagement. The point seems to be the sentiment is fairly universal. Number five, remote work provides flexibility. Now, we all, that's an obvious one, but this is specifically for parents, for caregivers, people with disabilities. It just gives flexibility to those people who really, really need it. But the first area of flexibility that remote work provides is money. And that's because if you stay at home rather than going to work, then you can potentially save up to $6,000 if you do it a hybrid role and $12,000 is $1,000 a year by working remotely full-time. 
Now, savings can be made on like commuting costs, on clothes, on eating. Um, you don't tend to go, you don't, you're not likely to go out to Starbucks and buy a coffee if, if you have to get the boss to go there and come back. So the recent cost of living crisis brought these financial well-beings into, or financial well-being into the spotlight. Now, especially for those companies asking people to come back in the office, the financial impact is a hot topic. So making sure from a cost of living perspective that you have good salaries, fair pay, um, and the foundations in place in terms of pay, pensions, any other benefits that you can offer, that's the place to start rather than maybe apps or other benefits that potentially will scratch around the edges but not fix the core problem. Uh, We also talked about, as we've spoken about, the kind of manager aspect as well. So making sure that wherever people go for support or advice, that those people they talk to are equipped with the right information to signpost appropriately. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast, Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. It is, of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. If you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, <laughs> then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. (laughs) If you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important for us to say Yeah, no, we copied. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the other part of this is that if you can work anywhere, then you can work anywhere. So a lot of people are talking about moving out of London, out of Manchester City Centre, into more rural places that are cheaper, that are nicer, that you can go and walk your dog in the evening, that are potentially safer. I know San Francisco's not got a great reputation at the moment. It seems that a lot of people are moving out of the city. Again, only from like stuff I see on the news and stuff. It's not like I've not been there. But the whole point I think is that 2.4% of all people around 5 million, of all Americans, around 5 million people have said they've already moved due to remote working opportunities. And another like quarter percent of people have It's not a quarter percent. That's not a quarter percent of a person. Another 25% of the people asked said they were moving four hours from their employer location with commutable distances no longer a concern. And I think this makes sense because why would you sit in a grey, damp building with the rain hitting the windows if what you really dream of is sitting on a beach somewhere? Now, of course, sitting on a beach... You can't really work on a beach because you get sand in your, in your laptop. And so, I mean, remote work is also really good for people who find it difficult to get into work. Perhaps they're disabled, perhaps mobility is a bit more reduced or a chronic illness or something. 44% of the respondents to the survey who identified as having a chronic disability or an illness totally agree. And as we know from last week's episode, remote and flexible work, work options are also really effective for the neurodiverse. Now, it's not just disabled. It's not just neurodiverse. Parents and caregivers... Now, the OWL lab from 2021, remember OWL, O-W-L, not A-L, 63% of those people who work from home during the pandemic had to take care of children or a dependent. Now, the majority of caregivers are women. And while worldwide, women only make up 38% of the workforce, they, they are the majority with 60% of them in remote work, according to the GitLab's remote work report. 
Women also express that it's easier to progress careers and meet deadlines when working remotely. What do you think of that, Leah? It all makes sense to me. And again, I think, you know, it's going to be different for individuals. When it came to women, I think we were talking to Dr. Claire in our women's health episode. So the pandemic was either brilliant for women or it was awful for women. Like there's no real in between. But again, it gives you flexibility. It gives you options. It's like Dr. Nancy was explaining last week about how, you know, if you're autistic, having those flexible working hours to either walk flexibility to either work from home or flexible working hours as to when you go into the office, what time of day, what days, makes all the world a difference. So I think, again, it's just giving people with disabilities, with different constraints, with different priorities, with different things to manage in their life, the flexibility and control that they need to be able to manage these more effectively. There's a whole generation of people for whom this is basically what they want. It's not whether you are a caregiver, disabled, neurodiverse, got children. It's what they want. So millennials and Gen Z are now demanding this. So number six, it is the future because the future of the workforce are demanding it. Yes, I really don't think we can overlook the expectations our younger generations have when it comes to to working preferences. I do believe remote work is here to stay. And another reason... I believe when my work is here to stay is because employees are more engaged. So discretionary effort or going the extra mile, that is a core behavior that we see in engaged employees. And the data shows that people are often reinvesting the time they are saving commuting into their work. 40% of respondents who shifted to remote work due to COVID-19 said they were working more since going remote. And the same percentage said they were working the same as before. There was only about 20% that said that they were working less. And 20% is about the people we believe we have who are actively disengaged within our workplaces anyway. So probably doesn't make any difference. But of course, if we are working longer hours, and this is a downside of remote work, it could lead to individual challenges for employees, including stress and in prolonged cases, burnout. You'll remember from our mental health awareness episode that the latest research by Mind showed that 50% of employees don't feel supported by their organisation. And that may be down to the rapid shift in remote work and how slower support has been implemented. Ross also shared one of his tools he uses to improve support for remote employees. Before I made any hire, the first thing I did was I sat in a hotel room, set up a camera and recorded myself recording a handful of videos to talk about our processes and procedures. And I did this intentionally because I wanted to gift the future me, the ability to not have to hold a meeting in an interview pr- during the, the onboarding process where I had to coach the team on how to use these different tools. So instead, I created a handful of videos where the team today would still get some of mine, but some other foundation I've recorded others to kind of contribute to our new processes and new tools. And they just educate the team on how to do things. And it saves time from having to book meetings. It saves time from training because now people are able to just go through the material as a part of their onboarding and go back to it in the future if they would like to. Now, for once, I'm going to be saying what Leanne normally says. And he's saying that if you want to improve the support your organization gives to its employees, you need to, should we say it together, Leanne? Invest Invest in in managers. managers. 
that was probably not quite as well timed. Do you want to do it again? No, I like it. Let's leave it like that. <laughs> the role of line managers is so important, we know, in terms of well-being, in terms of mental health, in terms of performance, in terms of productivity. Everything comes back to the line manager. So it's a fair question to ask. How do you train line managers to be effective remotely? And how do you make sure they're also supported if they're working remotely? We asked Beth. It's a tough one. Um, And I will say, I think the role of the manager has got harder and harder over the last few years. So a couple of things that we do specifically at Investors in People, um, we make sure that we invest in that group and have they have time to get together to share problems and lessons. Uh, We're going to start doing that in person this year for the first time since the pandemic. We also make sure that they have the training that they need. Um, so that there aren't any accidental managers. They're invested in learning how to be a manager as much as they are their technical skills. And um, for better or for worse, they also have lots of contact time with me. So we're actually small enough that I can have uh, FaceTime or one-to-one time over Teams or in person with every single manager at least once within two weeks. So I talk to them about what's on their plate, do a bit of coaching, answer questions, signpost if they've got things that they need. Um, And that's worked really well to provide them with that safe space and support as well during this difficult time. Um, There's free training available online, which kind of builds the foundation stepping stones of what it is to be a manager and and how that works. Um, And then I guess it's just being there to answer questions. Uh, So you can be, if they can't find the answer on your sort of intranet or shared documents or policies, you can be like their management Google, um, be there to support them, answer those questions, give the benefit of your experience and expertise I think that's that's made a huge difference for our manager cohort. And then also, I think one thing that I've learned during my career is look out for people that others follow. So just identifying natural leaders to go into management positions gives you a massive head start rather than just looking for technical experts who have much further to come in terms of that development. The eighth reason why remote working is better than office working is that it has enabled us to prioritise our well-being. So since some remote employees have been putting in more hours and weekend work, they've also started taking more care of their mental health. A report from Microsoft this time shows that 53% of those surveyed, particularly parents and women, that went up to 55% of the parents and 56% 56% for women are more likely to prioritize their health and well-being now than they were previously when they were not working from home. And another 47% are more likely to prioritize family and personal life over work. What's interesting about the pandemic is it's taken a lot of things from us, um, but it's also given us a little bit more perspective over what's important. We've all kind of stopped and, re- well, not all, but a lot of us have stopped and reflected and we decided not to be quite so hard on ourselves. Like, for example, work is something that no longer defines or seems to define millennials and Gen Zs. Of course, there will be some who, who it does, but for the majority of them, it doesn't define them. There's a reason that TikTok is full of people, usually of that, of that generation, those generations, taking the piss out of me, Gen X and boomers, because we seem so st- set in our ways. So Ross says to us, let's just stop butting heads about this and let's be a little bit more easy on ourselves and others. But more than anything, I am easy on myself when it comes to not always getting everything right. As much as I'm my harshest critic, when it comes to the things that I developed and the things that I create, I'm also um, not hard on myself to a point where I am overly stressed because I don't always have a 50-50 balance, right? I think it's easy to look at yourself and say, 
you are a failure. You're a mistake. You're not doing well. You're struggling here. You're always doing this. That's a toxic mentality that I think can cause a lot of harm. And I really do believe that you have to give yourself compliments just as much as you give yourself negative critique because it's easy to critique yourself. I do that all the time when it comes to my work. I, I find value in critiquing my work. But if you're intentional and you actually try your best and you sit, can look in the mirror and say, I try my best to give as much as I can to my kids, to give as much as I can to my partner, to give as much as I can to my work, to the industry and to the communities that I want to be a part of. If you can say you do your best, then that's great. That's all you can ask for. And I just try my best and that's it. And if I am successful, great, but I'm trying my best. And I know that sometimes I'll go months without talking to one of my friends and I'll be like, drop the ball there. But that's a part of it. I've try- I'm trying my best constantly and it's difficult, no doubt about it. But as long as I'm trying, then I'm able to sleep well at night. Reason number nine, and this might be my most favorite of all the favoritest of reasons, is that remote work replaces lazy leadership with intentional leadership. Intention is definitely the word of 2023 so far. So remote work, I believe, has completely exposed any undeveloped leaders and any lazy leaders. Research shows us increasingly that the competencies and behaviours of an effective leader are no different in remote or hybrid settings than they are in the office. So saying as a leader, it is much more difficult to lead people remotely it might be actually that it's more about you. It's not them, hun. It's you. A good leader is a good leader or rather an intentional leader is a good leader. Here's Ross. And the key to that is really just being intentional with recognizing that remote work is different. And with remote work, communication excellence is a necessity rather than a nice to have. When you were in the office, it's easy to go and have lunch with your colleagues and peers, or even just say something across the office that the entire company hears within the matter of seconds. But with a remote first company, you have to set a bar and a level of expectation around what great communication looks like. And then as the leader of the company, you need to match it and meet it every single day. Now, there are a few aspects of intentional leadership I'd like to highlight, if I may. Just to give you, because again, we're not, what did you say last week, Al? We don't just drop you in the shit. We're not just going to go, chances are you're not a very good leader. We're actually going to tell you about the things that you can do to be more effective. There are lots of leaders that will say things like, oh, well, you know, people don't actually work when they're from home. You can't trust them to work from home. Or, you know, they're just skiving. They went for a hair appointment on Wednesday. Trust is, trust is everything. If you don't trust your employees, frankly, why did you hire them in the first place? And what does that say about the culture of your business where trust just isn't there? And also don't forget, trust works both ways. If you don't trust your people, there's a really good chance that they don't trust you. Ross believes that the best way to find out if you can trust someone is to trust them and lives this every day through one of Foundation's core values. Foundation is his business that he runs with a 100% remote team. Their core value is you are flexible, accountable and free. I asked Ross what role trust played for him in building a successful remote company. 
trust is the foundation in which a great remote culture has to exist and can exist in. If you don't trust the individuals on your team, then you shouldn't have those individuals on your team. They've clearly broken your trust in some way. There's this concept that we at Foundation talk about very often called a trust battery. Um, and it's a concept that I've heard uh, Toby Luque from Shopify talk about as well. And it's kind of like The Sims. And as a video game geek, if anyone listen, watches video games or plays video games, they'll get this reference. But over the head of every single individual that you interact with, you have kind of a gauge. You have a gauge, which is your trust battery and the level of trust that that person has with you. And as a company and as an organization, every single individual that you employ comes into your company typically at a 50-50 level, maybe slightly a little bit more where they trust you a little bit more because they had a great interview process and you should try to optimize for that. But when they enter your doors, they're at 50. And what happens over time is if you as an employer or as you as a manager continue to do the things that you say you're going to do, provide the support that individuals need, you're going to see that trust battery increase. And on the flip side, if you're an employee and you do what you say you're going to do and you meet your deadlines, then you're being great at communication, your trust battery with them is also going to increase. Now, the flip side to that is also true. If trust is eradicated through a significant amount of bad interactions, poor behaviors, missed deliverables, missed timelines, etc., then the trust battery drains. And what you should strive to constantly do in a remote environment is optimize for the most trust possible. And if people are going down a path where they're constantly taking dings to their trust battery or they're dinging your own trust battery, then you have to ask yourself if this is a good person for your culture, for your team, and for your company. And the answer is likely no. You want people who you can trust because through trust becomes autonomy. And when you have autonomy, you as an adult who has this job and has this role has the ability to, in my opinion, to do your best work because you don't always feel like somebody's over your shoulder trying to see what you're doing. The second of the three things that make you an intentional leader is communication. So connection and collaboration in remote settings also requires a huge amount of intention. So again, going back to this Microsoft Work Trend report, it found that 70% of decision makers regard maintaining social connections within teams as one of their biggest challenges. Unfortunately, employees suffer the consequences of these hurdles. See, about half of them feel that their relationship with co-workers outside their team was weakened, and that leaves like 43% feeling disconnected from the company. We, we know this doesn't need to be this way, because Gen Z and millennials live their life online. They're comfortable having strong relationships via a device, but older generations are not used to this and not comfortable. They crave connection. We have an interesting dynamic here when it comes to communication then, don't we? We've got people who are very comfortable with digital intimacy and we've got others that aren't very comfortable. And those others are typically in higher leadership positions. So employees need to take steps to combat this. Otherwise, it could start to really impact employee satisfaction and, of course, then business performance. Ross faced this challenge as a remote business leader and over time has reaped the benefits of asynchronous communication. Yeah, it was one of the biggest hurdles and one of the biggest obstacles that I had in the early days of even making the decision to go remote. A lot of people would say, Ross, how are you going to run a creative company, a company that's creating cool things without actually jumping into a room and feeling each other's energy and writing on a whiteboard? Like, that's not possible. Um being around since 2014, working with some of the top SaaS companies in the world, we've been able to prove that that's a myth. It's not real. You don't need to physically be in the same room, the same environment to actually have creative 
ideas. There's a reason why you can literally today find your, the love of your life online and build a strong and deep connection and relationship without actually being in the same room to be with each other. That is happening right now today. And it has probably happened to some of the listeners where they've met someone online, they connected with them, they shared a lot of messages, and they knew from that dialogue that that was the person. And for some reason in the creative industry, we think, yeah, you can fall in love with someone, but you can't come up with a good idea remotely. It doesn't make any sense. The way that you facilitate it is as an organization, you have to embrace the idea of collaborative tools. You have to embrace the idea of having collaborative dialogues and being okay with a message coming back to you two or three minutes later. And sometimes that's okay. It's okay because it also gives you space to think. So if I go to the team and I present an idea and I share my idea, my message, in that moment, that was the context that I had that I communicated to them. But then I go for a walk. I might have a tea party with my daughter. I might go down to the local beach. And in that process where my mind is no longer thinking about the problem and my mind is in a more calm state of flow, a new idea might hit me. And then I can come back to my desktop. I can see that the team has collaborated. They've commented. They might have threw a few emojis and a GIF on something that I shared asynchronously. And then I can say, quick update. Here's some additional context that I just came up with and realized that I wanted to share with you. Now, in some cases, if I'm in person, that can never happen because everything is constricted to the 60-minute meeting block in which that content was delivered synchronously. But asynchronously gives you the opportunity to find more space. It gives you the opportunity to balance and do additional research and then come back to an update to collaborate with multiple minds. That is what makes asynchronous communication so special. So the third thing you need for intentional leadership is Leanne's favorite C word. No, not that one. What is it, Leah? Culture. That, that's my second favorite C word. But <laughs> <laughs> joking, I am. It is culture. We couldn't talk about leadership intention without talking about culture. Culture can feel intangible, but it doesn't have to be. Culture can be measured. It can be shaped. It can be changed. And to do all that, you just need a predictive model of culture, like the RX7 model that we've talked about before that we use with clients at Oblong. It scopes the seven foundations of culture that leaders can provide that they can influence. And by doing this, it's showing that you authentically care and that goes a long way. Ross also agrees that culture requires intention. Our approach to culture is very intentional. We believe that culture can sometimes happen organically if you're in an office and people are around each other and you kind of just hang out and a culture kind of develops. When you're fully remote, you have to communicate and talk about the cultural expectations often. Um, you have to live by your values and talk about your core values often. And then you actually have to show up and communicate and demonstrate your values just the same. One of our core values at Foundation is elevate culture. Um, and if you hear that, you might say, what does that even mean? We essentially, when we're talking about elevating culture, we're talking about internally as well as externally. On the internal side, when we talk about elevating culture, we're talking about helping ensure that other Foundationites, other people on your team are having an ideal work experience. Meaning instead of just sending them a thumbs up when you approve something, give them some context around what you liked about their piece. Give them some context around why you thought that they should adjust a certain thing. And if you really, really wanted to elevate culture, maybe record a loom or video asynchronously and share it with them talking through the things that you want to see. 
When we talk about those types of ideas frequently and we reward those ideas and celebrate those behaviors internally, we have a celebration Slack channel and we're always celebrating things that people are doing that actually contribute and demonstrate our core values. It starts to reinforce the ideas that we want our team to embody. When we think about externally elevating culture, we believe in that our team should have the opportunity to work with and communicate and collaborate with people who they actually care about. So we have a volunteer day where every single day, the office, every single year, the office shuts down and everyone is given and encouraged to take the day off to elevate culture in the communities and in the spaces that they feel connected to. And that is our commitment to our team to say, look, again, autonomy, you pick the charity, you pick the nonprofit, you pick the organization that you want to support, go do your thing. But we want you to be empowered to go and do that. So when you start to embrace that and recognize like this is with a fully remote company around the world, they're all going to have different things they care about, different spaces they want to um, be involved with. Giving them that option reinforces the idea that we want them to constantly be thinking about how they can elevate culture internally and externally. Um, so intention is really the key. When you're thinking about the onboarding experience for a new employee, talking to them about the rules of how you communicate on Slack, talking to them about best practices for calendar management, how to send an email, we've recorded and created a significant amount of documentation where an ideal experience for a foundation night would be no matter what you run into, there's a document. There's a loom, there's a video, there's a course, there's a material, a checklist that you can go through that tells you how to do that thing. And by doing so, it makes it easy for our team to operate on multiple time zones and again, ensure that we're constantly operating in sync around the same cultural values. Always remember, you have a culture, whether you know it or not. So if you're not intentionally shaping that culture, who knows what it's doing for your business? I was at a, a wellbeing conference and someone gave a quote to me and, and it stuck in my mind and I think of it all the time. Um, and they said that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So I think if you've got a naturally caring style, as in you, you care about the people that are working with you or for you, you're interested in them as human beings. I think that is the, the natural makings of a great leader. Everything else in terms of what to do in terms of conversations and that kind of thing can be trained. But it's difficult to build on a foundation where that care isn't there in the first place. So moving on to our final point, our 10th reason why remote is so awesome. I asked Beth, if there was one thing that line managers or business owners could do tomorrow, something simple, that's going to have an immediate impact on how effective they are at managing a remote or hybrid team, what would it be? One of the things that we've spoken about as unique and beneficial about investors in people is that we gather data about how your staff are feeling and thinking and how they experience work and we're independent. So you can have the peace of mind that if we go in and we are looking at your practices and talking to your team, you're getting a real picture of what's actually happening. And that's something that gives you peace of mind and potentially protects against the risk of something happening in a corner of the organisation you're not aware of that could then impact on your reputation, for example. Yes, Beth. Yes, yes, yes. Data is everything. And it is no coincidence that we've been throwing data at you this entire episode. Remote work has to be data and evidence led to work. Well, to be honest, office office work does as well. But if you're working remotely, it is almost impossible to lead effectively if you do not gather data. 
Using Employee Insights can give you the data you need. It is your new best friend if you want to make remote or hybrid working work. Here's Ross. So it, I think it's extremely useful because once you have the data to better understand how people feel and how people are perceiving different things, you can make adjustments and make shifts in your own behaviors in your own organization at large. You can also get a sense of like, what is the trust battery that the team actually has with us as an organization? Have we set ourselves up for success as it relates to our trust with the team? These are the things that you want to understand as a leader because it's going to give you a better glimpse into one, do you have the high-performing team that you aspire to have? But also, are you creating a culture where a high-performing team can actually thrive? If you're always getting 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10 across the board, I think actually that's not a great sign for culture. That means that you've probably set yourself up where you have an environment that isn't holding people maybe even accountable to certain things. But if you have a few instances where a few people within your company are saying, yeah, I feel like... Um, a little bit too much is expected from us. And that's something that you're seeing. That's okay. Because that can be an insight that's saying you are still pushing people to actually reach high stakes, volumes of goals and priorities and metrics and things of that nature. So we use that data to do a gut check on how we're running. We do use that data to get a gut check on our team and how they're feeling. Um, I think that data is so important. So Ross then went on to share how he uses data, audit and organization to help him be effective as a leader at Foundation. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Intention in Action. So if I spend time with the team, I have a color-coded calendar where it showcases what things are culture-driven, what things are sales-driven, which things are marketing-driven, which things are coaching-driven, which things are with the leadership team, which things are with my children, my partner, just one-on-one time, which things are just like Ross creative time, what things are community-driven where I'm giving back. All of those things go into my calendar and I'm able to audit on a monthly basis how much time and energy did I spend giving back to the community? If I notice that that goes down below five hours a month, then I'm like, okay, that's not really aligned with what I want to do. Um, if I notice that I am way over-indexed on the work side where community, family, friends all take a significant dip, then I look at the coming month and I'm like, all right, I'm going to book a week vacation. Okay, I'm going to do something different this upcoming month. So those are the things that, I do to help me sleep well at night, but I really do live and live by my calendar. And I think calendar management is one of the most important things that any leader can do um, because all we have in life is time. And if you can manage your time well, then you can manage your life well. Now, data allows us to take calculated risk when it comes to experimenting and trying new things in the workplace. We can use it to measure the impact and the ROI. But as Ross admits, shaping the future of work is tricky and you're not always going to get it right. I asked Ross what he predicts for the future of work and what some of the risks and challenges he thinks we're going to see along the way. We're going to continue down the path of seeing an increase in the amount of organizations that are embracing remote work. I think a lot of the companies that are reverting back to being in the office or hybrid have kind of put their stamp on the ground and have done that. I think there might be a few more to come that will say, all right, we're putting and forcing everyone back into the office. Um, But I think we're going to see a a continued rise in remote companies, especially with early stage companies, especially with SMBs and small companies and small businesses. Now, one of the things that 
throws remote work a little bit of a curveball. And this is a reality that is also starting to show up is that there's this whole movement around have two remote jobs at the same time and just double up in terms of the income. And this is something that is taking a lot of remote companies and saying, hmm, okay, there is a bit of a risk here. Could I have an employee who is working another job at the same time and they're doubled up in terms of their output and their work? That's a real risk. That is something that organizations need to also consider and think about um, as they start to embrace remote work. And the solution there is to really just have visibility as a team with your managers, your directors, et cetera, to understand what a true capacity and capabilities look like for individuals and use that to understand how to allocate and distribute work assignments and projects. And that is my number 10 and my most favorite because remote leaders know that data is their best friend. And if we have data, we can make impactful changes that actually make a difference in individual lives and on business performance. We are evidence-led and that is what I am here for. (laughs) I'm going to get you a t-shirt saying I am (laughs) evidence-led. So should we quickly go through the one to 10 things we just went over there? Yes, number one is preferred. Our employees want it. Let's try and give it to them. Number two, remote work makes an employer attractive or a workplace attractive. Number three, remote work often supports a healthier work-life balance. Number four, remote work allows work to work for the individual. Number five, remote work provides flexibility for parents, for caregivers, for people with disabilities, for the neurodiverse, for all of us who want the flexibility and choice over where we live and how we spend our money. Number six, it is literally the future. The future generations who are going to be working with us over the next like 60 years want remote work. Number seven, the data is showing that employees are more engaged. They are showing more discretionary effort and going the extra mile. Number eight, remote work prioritizes well-being. We know that we take care of ourselves if we can have the flexibility to do so. Number nine, remote work means we have intentional leadership and that is everything. And number 10, data is everything. In other words, we can do this remote work thing if we look at the data. Yeah, so those are our 10 reasons as to why remote work is going to win this this battle. I'm not even sure we need to record next week, you know, I think we're <laughs> joking. <laughs> So if you haven't already, be sure to check out Ross's podcast, Create Like the Greats. Um, here's Ross just to give you a little flavor of what to expect. Yeah, I would strongly encourage folks to check it out. Create Like the Greats, essentially, we dive deep into the history and the experiences that some of the greatest creators of all time have gone through, whether it's actually studying a creation, like a company like Masterclass and the things that they did to scale and grow and build this major company that is ultimately worth millions of dollars all the way through to actual individual creators, where we actually interview those creators. We interview those who may have worked with these creators and create stories and create episodes that take you behind the scenes into the way that these creators did or do what they do. Sometimes we talk to creators that are completely outside of my world, which is marketing, such as a conductor who has deep experience conducting some of the greatest classical music orchestras in the world and how they create an environment within that to really create high performers. Or we'll interview some of the greatest musicians of all time and the people who work with them to tell stories around how they create great things. We'll also leave Beth's LinkedIn profile 
in the show notes and the Investors in People website address. Here is Beth to explain the various services Investors in People offers. We're focusing just on the people aspects. It's in three main clusters. Uh, So we look at leadership. Um, Are leaders trusted? Do they set direction? Uh, What are the company values like? Uh, We look at supporting to make sure that people are being developed, looked after, um, that they have great jobs. And then lastly, improving. So there's a culture of continuous improvement, sustainability, um, and a focus on making things better over time. That some people look for it when they're searching for jobs, as it's the, it's kind of a trust mark of a great employer. And particularly we've found with our new apprentices framework, that's been really helpful for people entering the world of work through the apprenticeship route to differentiate between the good and the great schemes out there. Well, there you have it. That's the first part of two. Don't forget, we're going to be neck back next week and we'll be arguing just as vehemently and uh, passionately about why the office, and it's going to be a tough one because we haven't worked in office for a long time. Yes, but luckily we have some incredible guests that we met from Clark and Mild Design Week. And I'll be honest, two things surprised me about Clark and Mild Design Week. One, I was starting to really think, wait a minute, is the office back? Is this a thing? And two, my favourite conversation over the two days was about electricity and plug sockets. So there you go. Your dad would be very proud being an electrical engineer. So we will see you next week. For now, remote work one, office work nil. But I have a feeling that could change next week. Let's find out. Bye for now. Bye.